Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. It takes a pandemic. Okay, you fill in the rest. For instance, it takes a pandemic for me to finally clean out my desk. Right, um, it takes a pandemic to start reading that pile of New Yorkers. Uh, it takes a pandemic for me to finally learn to fake. Well, for audiences of live performance, it takes a pandemic to cherish our actors and musicians. With our great jazz venues and theaters closed, live performance has stopped. But actors and musicians continue to create. They have to. It's who they are. For this Hunker Down podcast, I talk with these artists who perform for a living about how social distancing is affecting their work now and when this is all over. About their dedication to the art of live performance. What is an actor? For instance, can a disabled person play an able-bodied character? I mean, how stuck are we in our imaginations? Is it possible to look beyond physical characteristics and focus just on the character being performed? These are the questions I'm going to be asking actress Anita Hollander. Miss Hollander has performed in major theater venues throughout Europe, Asia, and America as an actress, singer, composer, lyricist, director, producer, and teacher. As a two-time cancer survivor, Anita has negotiated over half her 50-year performing career on one leg and has worked to raise awareness about issues surrounding the disabled actor. So, Anita Hollander, thank you so much for joining us here on Hunkered Down, a podcast in which we talk to performers, actors, and musicians about existing in the COVID-19 crisis. Where are you now? So, I'm in midtown Manhattan um, in my... uh apartment in Manhattan. And in fact, you were at the Manhattan Plaza. Yes, I was just going to say it myself. Am I, is it okay for me to say that? But yes, in Manhattan Plaza, which is great because I'm part of a community of artists who are all in the same predicament. Every night at seven, we see each other when we go out to clank and clap and And, do all that stuff. And 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 it's great to see each other knowing we're here. And we do it here on the Upper West Side too. And there's a whole gang. There's a guy downstairs who bangs his pot. And, and last night, a guy went onto the street on West End Avenue and was uh, was singing songs over a loudspeaker yep. that he had set up. I guess with all the performers there at Manhattan Plaza, you have stuff like that going on. It's Oh, yeah, down on the plaza itself, there's like people, there's all the characters in the world doing like creative dance. And, you know, it's like there's a guy who plays the shofar up on the oh. 31st floor of the other building. Because I, I was trying, I have this little dinky shofar and I was yeah. giving it a try and it was sounding like a big fart and it was awful. <laughs> but my friend Michael, I heard he was very good. So I asked him, why don't you? And so he gets out on the 31st floor with one of those big long ones, uh, you know, shofar and he plays it and it like just goes through the air. And you understand why they used a shofar to call people together because you can hear it. And I wanted to thank Joel Bernstein once again, my co-producer here for Hunker Down, for putting us together. He's also in Manhattan Plaza, a uh, wonderful actor 
of who you have been have known for a long time. So shout out to Joel. You've known him since the eighties. As, as you see uh, the picture there, the black and white picture. He and I did cabaret together. Right. Uh, you played Fräulein Schneider, and he played yes. Herr Schulz, and uh, in cabaret in nineteen ninety seven. His wife actually took the picture because his wife's a great photographer. And she came up to Gretna and took this gorgeous, sort of iconic picture of the two characters. Right, at the, at the Gretna Playhouse. We're going to be talking about the actor and disabilities today. And I just want to say right off that I feel like I'm a little awkward and a bit uncomfortable in talking about this as a whole-bodied person. And I, I, or I, non-disabled. I or say non-disabled. non-disabled. Part of what I want to talk about is what's the correct terminology. Well, most, I would say that the majority of people either say person with a disability or a disabled person. Over the years, people have disagreed, and even the disability community has disagreed. But the overriding one that works mostly is people with disabilities, and in our case, performers with disabilities. But other people go, disabled first, you know, disabled person, you know, I'm a disabled person. That's like a pride thing and that sort of thing. I say I'm a person with a disability. Or right. just say amputee or one-legged actress. Right. I'm, I'm not as picky about it. But, no. but t- terminology becomes important in I know. creating, creating narratives and ideas well, What and we feelings. don't like is somebody ba- wheelchair-bound or confined to a wheelchair. When you hear the negative terms, those are the things that the disability community is against. Well, disabled, in a sense, is a negative term. <laughs> I hear you, know? you. I hear you on that. I, I mean, you're, you're. I think, but handicapped was was more bothersome. We in America thought about handicap as having a cap in hand and begging on the corner, uh, whereas the Brits did not say that. Other countries do not think of handicap as coming from that image. It had another meaning. I've been around the world, and and everyone has a different idea about it. I never, I've never thought of handicapped as hand, putting out your hand for a... When I heard that, I went, oh, is that... So that's where the word came from. But then I found out the Brits do have another origin of that. I, mean, I forgot to look it up, but they have a different origin and they don't think it's insulting. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if, if I were an actor and I would say, well, I'm, I'm an actor with two legs. It's like, I'm an actor with a head and two arms and two legs. And Right, you don't have... You nobody don't, you has don't to say have that. to say anything. Just, it's assumed. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm an actor, right? That's um, and the thing is, I'm an actor first, right. but I like to joke. And about let's that. and let's talk about that. You as an actor, let's talk about your your career. You've been acting for a long time. Why did you want to become an actor? Well, I started really young. Um, I knew when I was four that that I'd be doing this, or that I would either. That I'd be performing, that I was a performer. Well, what happened to you when you were four that told you that? My dad always brought home the latest Broadway album, and it was for me, I would do the whole Broadway show. And I had in my, my head the image of what the Broadway show should be like. So when my dad would bring us here, I'd go, no, that's not how Hello, Dolly is. Now, no, that's not my fair lane, because my story based on the songs 
that's a whole different thing. Uh-huh. Bring a dune, bring a dune. <laughs> uh, guys and dolls, guys and dolls, man of La Mancha. I saw when I finally saw productions of these, I was like, that's not the story. Why are they doing that? <laughs> but um, so when, when I was four, my family went to a magic show at the Hungarian ben- Hungarian Benevolent Society, and. The, the magician was setting up and said, would somebody like to do something? I'm told this story. I don't have a memory of it. Before my mom even saw me leave my seat, I was I had bolted up to the stage to volunteer. And they, <laughs> they said, oh, you want to sing a song? And I'm four years old. And do I sing Mary Had a Little Lamb? No. I sang I'll Know When My Love Comes Along from Guys and Dolls, <laughs> including the spoken part at the beginning of the song. And chemistry? Yes, chemistry. But I was four, and I I tended to try to say too many words at once. So I, it was really pretty much gibberish to the audience. And my mom's like, oh, she's like shocked that I was up there doing that. But I did the whole I love, well, know when my love comes along. So I guess that was when everybody figured out that that's what I was going to be doing because I didn't even skip, skip a beat. I mean, I just went. Yeah. So she she took me to audition an audition for the Sound of Music when I was eight, and I got I got Gradle, and it was a summer stock local perform- production. I think it was the first time Sound of Music had been done, not the national tour, but regional, right. and it was an equity production. And then Judy McCauley and uh, Lawrence Brooks were playing Maria and the captain. These were these were really these wonderful people. Later on, I found out they were so they were very well known and did a lot of broad and and even the conductor went on to be Barbara Cook's uh, musical director for almost yeah. her entire singing career. And this was when so, you were like just very young, five, eight. six, eight. I was eight. eight. Okay. I um I understudied Gradle. She got sick. I went on, and then the next year the show was so successful that the next summer they brought it back, and I played Marta. So for my first two years of my career, <laughs> my yeah. professional career i was doing the sound of music wow. and and it was like it was just natural for me you should know that my grandmother celeste who died before i was born was yeah. a vaudeville and broadway uh, dancer and that's her she's gorgeous and this is me Oh, and, I see the resemblance. Well, we look almost exact. My mother says we look exactly alike, and this was her mother. But her mother died of cancer before five years before I was born. My theory is I'm her because I came out already knowing what I was planning to do. And I knew things that I shouldn't have known. I look like her, and yeah. she died of cancer. I got cancer at 21. Right. <laughs> there was no indication of why. I would get a tumor inside the motor nerve of my left leg. There yeah. was no, there was no real reason. I was very clumsy as a kid. I fought, fell down a lot. But when I was on a stage, I was, I could dance. I was graceful. But anywhere else, I was a klutz. I was total klutz. I had I uh, problems seeing mm-hmm. depth perception, so I bang into things. Literally, I was a really klutzy kid. But not but on the stage. When I got on a stage. It was totally different. And my mom and many other people would say, That's, that can't be her. She's not that graceful. But it's, it's a thing. Um, but uh, I was 19 when my dad died. And about six months later, I had the first pain in my leg. 
So uh, obviously the tumor was there from the time I was 19, but nine out of 10 doctors looked at me and said there was nothing wrong with my leg, but it was 1977. There were, uh, there were no MRIs. So they didn't see this whopping tumor in my leg inside my nerve. In February of uh, 1977, because I started feeling it in 76 and I was diagnosed finally in February of 1977 at the age of 21, and they took the motor nerve out of my leg. Uh, so I had a little brace from my knee down because my foot would flop, but so it fixed my foot. And then I went right back to Carnegie Mellon and finished my degree there because this happened during junior year. And then five years later, it recurred when I was in Boston and I was in the middle of rehearsals for Jacques Brel is alive and well and living in Boston. So they amputated the leg on March 12th, and we opened the show on April 15th. Wait so I was back on stage a few March weeks March 12th, ago. March, April, the next month you were, you were on stage. Four weeks later, we opened the show. So two weeks later, I went back to rehearsals on one leg because they couldn't make anything fast enough for me to... Anita, this, this is, uh, we've got to delve into this a little bit. That <laughs> point in your life uh, when it first happened... And you were a working actress. You were doing. You were studying, and and I guess you were still working summer stock, whatever. Well, I had a pretty good resume by the time I went to Carnegie Mellon. Yeah, right, so I was. Right. And then, and then you get this news. I mean, what what's the feeling that's going on yeah. at that point? I mean, my career's over, or no, I'm going to get through the this. The kind of person I am, I took it as an acting exercise. This was just a <laughs> test to see if I really want to be an actor. But you know, it's just a test, and. uh I had circles and arrows and diagrams about how it was just a, you know, here I am, here's my motivation, here's my conflict, and here's what I want to be, and here's my objective. And I, and I really did it as an acting exercise. So um, that was the first time because I was at Carnegie Mellon and I was in the middle of doing those things. So I took it as an acting exercise. Sounds like you were, studying, Stanis later, I, you were studying Stanislavski, it sounds like. I was. Yeah. Because those are Stanislavski terms you were just using. Yes. And my theory. Yeah. It was Stanislavski. I was reading Stanislavski, I think, freshman year. I mean, definitely. An actor we prepares. Thinking. So we had all, I had all the lingo. And instead of treating a role that way, I treated my, uh, my situation that way. The cancer and the, at, at that time, it wasn't an amputation, but it was a full length scar from my ass and my ankle. So. I mean, it was heavy-duty surgery, and I couldn't feel. Uh, I was also paralyzed in that leg, but I went on and danced in London in, uh, in a show that toured around Europe. All right, so you go, you go to a director, and I mean, it, during that period, I mean, now you, you know what to do, but you go there and say, look, I've got this thing, but I can still do the work, and you yeah, went and did it. It works sometimes, and it doesn't work other times, but here's think that I would uh, hide the brace. It was plastic. It was underneath my tights. And uh, right after all this had happened and I finished the chemo and the radiation while I was at school, thank God Carnegie Mellon was like great to me. They were like, whatever, you know, because I went and did all the classes and got my fight, my stage fighting um, my God. certificate, even with the brace on my leg. And uh, not everybody believed I could continue what as a performer but there were just enough people that i had so much confidence about doing it they were like okay you know the one uh, classmate who would do my fight 
choreography with me was Roscoe Gilliam, who went on to do a chorus line. And he was the brave soul who said, because everyone was afraid I, I was very fragile. Everyone was afraid I would break. But I was way different person than that. Yeah. <laughs> there was no way that was going to happen. But I did have, you know, a lot of, I had my painful times, but that was when I learned that I could write music, write songs, and I wrote about the experience, and thanks to a teacher who said to stop doing Joni Mitchell and James Taylor and maybe write something myself, and I did, and that became a show, which eventually was, I mean, you were talking about the age that I was at. Yeah. It really was more about, I'd been doing theater since I was eight, and this this was an interruption that wasn't going to last long because I had no time to worry about it. I had things to do and people to see. I mean, when I was one year old, I jumped out of my crib and got a concussion. I had things to do. Wow. <laughs> I came out as a person who was busy. I had people to see and places to go. I'm still imagining you getting a leg amputated, which it's not like having a tooth pulled. And it's big. It's, it's it's a pretty big thing, and it's a trauma to the body. It, it must is. be. And yet you continued within a month to do yeah. a, a show and get up and on stage. That, and you haven't that, even trained yourself to walk yet, I guess. That, well, that's the thing. I was prepared because at 21, having, a par having my leg be paralyzed, I knew what it was like to feel like I didn't have a leg. So five years went by and I was performing with this brace, not knowing if my foot was pulling on the floor. I was learning the things that people learn when they have an artificial leg. Yeah. So when five years later, when the amputation had to happen in the middle of this rehearsal period, and I was directing the show too. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, they... Uh, Sounds like you got a cold and you came back without a leg. <laughs> the, the doctor said, if you've been dancing on the leg that you had, which was badly damaged by radiation and was dying right on you, you'll be able to dance in an artificial leg. And I totally took that as, okay, we're all right. Uh, of course, it took a lot more than that because they ended up having to amputate much higher than they thought because there were more cancer cells than they thought. Um, so, but I got the leg and I, I really was pushing the PT, the physical therapy people and pushing the the legs makers and stuff. It's like, I've got a show, so you have to like work fast. And I had said to them in, the, in my hospital bed the day before the amputation, the PT people came and I said, okay, how soon can I get out of bed? And they were, well, well, first you have to learn how to roll over. And then maybe the next day we'll have you sit up on the side of the bed. And then maybe by Monday, we will maybe get you up on one leg. And I'm like, okay, we have to move. And they were just freaking out. But, you know, the healing had to be going on. There were there was incisions and stuff yeah. and there was swelling. And But I, I was so motivated to do the thing that I didn't really think about how it was crazy. I just I mean, although everybody thought I was crazy, but I I, uh, I was lucky to have something that motivated me to get better to heal. I also took a lot of um, zinc and I, I had read prevention magazine. So I was taking all of these nutritional supplements and I healed very fast. I, it doesn't mean I was not exhausted all the time and in pain a lot of the time, I but, bet. but it was something that I had to do, which took my mind off being feeling sorry for myself I think or there's, feeling the tragedy. There's enormous <laughs> lesson there. 
about five li- months later, I went to London, back to London to just get away from everything. Once the show closed, I spent four weeks in London and that's where it hit me because I got, I rested finally. And that's when all the emotions came up and the, um, I was friends with Nigel Hawthorne, this wonderful British actor. And it was the day I went to have tea with him that, because he's, he's such a, he was a, such a compassionate soul that I, after that, I went back to my wonderful friend's apartment. And, and then I, I realized I'd been through a horrible experience. It was like a horror. All I could think was the word horror. It was a horrible experience. But I didn't think about it at the time the show itself was wonderful that, yeah. that we did. I, it was hard to keep my energy up, but when you're doing Jacques Brel, it's like your catharsis of whatever you have to say. It's so emotional and so it's a way to express whatever you're going through. And I did. I definitely right. did. Right. It's yeah. So the morning, the morning happened much later. And I think that happens in death too, when someone dies, and you you may not actually feel it for the year or so. And yeah, you can be numb, or you can be just. I mean, that's why after my dad died, I went right back to school, and I thought I'll use my work to grieve because I I knew it was very important to grieve. Yeah, I mean, it was a huge shock to our family. He wasn't sick. We didn't know he was having heart failure. We didn't know that. So it was a total shock the day after Yom Kippur that he dropped dead. And so the whole family was, everybody got sick in some kind of way. And I thought that going back and working on my acting would help me to process the grief. But in fact, inside my body, there was a whole nother agenda going on, which turned out to be cancer. I then asked Anita about her one-woman show, Still Standing, which came out of this experience of losing a leg. I didn't know it was going to become a musical. I just, I wrote this song called The Choice, which was about what it feels like at 3 a.m. in the hospital, and you don't know which way you're going to go from death or life, but you're choosing life that you don't, doesn't mean you know what to do with that and how that feels. And it turns out that song has been the cornerstone of Still Standing, because people always talk about that song afterwards, even though it's extremely simple and kind of the only thing in the show that's kind of tragic sounding um, because it was re- really raw feeling and I didn't change much of it. But when, uh, when I came to New York in uh, 1983, I got into the BMI workshop and the ASCAP workshop, both at the same time, these musical theater writer workshops which was great because it was then I started to think maybe these songs I've been writing, I had been writing them about my life from 1977 up until I moved to Boston, London and Pittsburgh and all the, I mean, many different places. But in New York, it was when I was able to say, maybe there's a show here. And I was doing cabaret. I I was performing in cabarets and doing very well with that. And I was, presenting new work by all of my fellow writers. And it began to dawn on me that I had a show myself, a solo show, because here's the thing, we were talking about employing performers with disabilities and how do you convince people that they can hire you? Well, I had to go through that as a one-legged actress, you know, somebody not hiring me because of the way I walked out of the room because an uneven gait, you know, walking in an artificial leg that, that no matter how well I sang, there were people who were gonna say, 
weird things. Like one casting director who, after I did this really great monologue, he went, it's a shame you're so talented. That was his answer. was like, number one, he thought he was complimenting me. And number two, why is that not okay? So there was, there was that going on. Even though I was getting work otherwise at other theaters. So it wasn't that I wasn't getting it, but I was beginning to detect that if I was going to push myself forward or keep working, I had to write my own stuff. And that's what I tell all performers with disabilities and anyone who says, oh, I'm not getting work, you know, and they're waiting for the phone to ring. Well, make your own work. So Still Standing was my way of making my own work, but it turned out to be a musical. It's called A Musical Survival Guide for Life's Catastrophes because it's 16 original songs about tools for survival. Could you, could you do a piece, a little piece of Still Standing? You got the piano right there. Yeah. The piece yeah. you were just talking about, the real simple one that got yeah. this all started. It's now three o'clock in the morning. You're lying there wondering why. The radio's murmuring love songs. When you worry today, you might die. And that feeling starts growing inside you. You think that it may never end. You reach for the phone by your bedside, but you don't want to wake up a friend. And you cry for the eyes of the people who stare, for the ears that don't hear how you try, for the hand slap that seemed so unfair. For the mouth that will give no reply How to live, to be alive And you cry And you still wonder why Yes. That's just Very the first verse. Still standing. And that musical. was the song, The Choice. But the musical is still standing. But it, it sort of gives the wrong impression because the truth is the show is very positive and it makes people laugh well anyway still standing has traveled all over the world and i've been doing it for 26 years and but this is a song about being a mermaid mom you know, a song called mommy is a mermaid about when i had a child and i wrote that song so that she would have something to think about when we got stared at as we walked down the street me on one leg and her walking and holding my crutch you know and uh there's a song about the advantages of having one leg and that's one of my favorites because it's like there's so many advantages and you know you just you'll just want to lop your leg off after you hear this song <laughs> and, and that's the way I get people comfortable with me because I walk on stage on two legs and I start with a little prologue kind of thing and then I and then I go okay I'm just gonna take this and I take it off during the introduction of the song and then I start singing about how great it is to have one leg and I put it over my shoulder and I um, and that sort of gets the audience to realize you're allowed to laugh. This is going to be funny. Uh, this is going to be very positive, and you don't need to worry about it. You don't see this every day, but it's going to be okay. <laughs> right. I mean, I just did the show in South Korea in December. Think about what I just said. Yeah. I just did the show in South Korea in December 2019, which is why I got sick in January of 2020. <laughs> but uh, nobody have... knew what was, nobody knew there was anything. So you, you had no COVID. What? You had COVID? Well, I don't know. I got sick in January, and I'd been on the plane from South Korea next to a woman who was very sick, and nobody really knew what she had. Well. Uh, 
they put it two and two together, I think I did. And I have to get an antibody test to find out, but we don't really know which antibody test to get. So I haven't done it yet, but, but it was, the timing was very much South Korea, flow, fly home with a woman next to you that's very sick. Three weeks later, you're very sick, but then you get over it and then you move on. And then the next month you find out there was something that was in South Korea and yeah. you were there then. And that's, yeah. and, and, they t and I kept communications with these wonderful people who hosted me, and they were like, yeah, we didn't, nobody knew, and then now we do. But um, Anita, you're a survivor. It's crazy, right? I yeah. mean, it is crazy. We then talked about Anita's new one-woman show, Spectacular Falls. I was supposed to do it this spring, but that got canceled, and then um, I'm scheduled to do it in London in September. And, and that one has a lot of things. Sometimes on two legs, dancing a lot in the show, and other times I'm on one leg. And then I do Tai Chi while singing a song. Body of a Fighter is about the tough stuff that I've dealt with, but just what you were saying about how I get over these things and stuff, the resilience, but the pain as well. And it's like a balance of that. So I do the whole song standing on one leg doing Tai Chi. You must have amazing balance. Yeah, because I really can't think of enough things to challenge me. Oh, right. <laughs> it's not an easy thing to do. And, and it's, it's, it's fine if the lights are all on, but when, when you're on theater lights and you've got a spotlight on you, your balance becomes much more difficult. Because if you can see people, they are your reference points for balance. But when the lights in the house and the audience go out and you have this one light, balance starts to go but i i totally don't give up on stuff so i do this body of a fighter thing and it's it's really was based on the idea of like eastern um martial arts and stuff because the body of a fighter meaning i do this but that doesn't mean i'm always strong and that doesn't mean i always feel strong but i do it because i'm a fighter and that's that's the way it goes. And I talk about um, Eastern culture when there's a crack in a bowl or a vase or something, they fill it with gold. And then it comes out stronger after it's been fixed, after the repair. And that's, I, I do an analogy of that's, who, that's what I am. I'm the bowl. Spectacular Falls is really about how, about falling, about everybody. How about fall? How about the word fall? Like, like the autumn is a is the fall. Mm -hmm. Or if you if you fall down, or if you fall into things fall into place, or you fall apart, or you fall through the cracks. There's a song about immigration immigrants falling through cracks, uh, and there's one about the towers falling, 9/11, uh, oh. and there's all these the idea of fall and how it is because I started my whole life falling out of my crib. Well, I jumped, but falling out, it was, it was a spectacular fall. And when I fall on the street because my crutch slips or something, I once broke my wrist falling on the street. It's never just a, I fall down. It's a spectacular fall. It's like I flip over and fall or I go through the turnstiles and I go, <laughs> and I feel, and I laugh because it's never just falling. It's like it's got to be this big thing. And so that, that's where the name Spectacular Falls came from. But then I began to relate it to how we all fall in some way and how do we get back up. And now 
in the period of time we're in now, I think maybe this maybe the show becomes more relevant than I it did last summer when I was going, Will anybody like this show? They did like it on on Forty Second Street, and thank God they did. So I wrote this song, You're just a banana peel away. Because anybody can be anything can happen to anybody at any time. Um, you really, it could take one second and you could be disabled or one second and you, you catch a germ. One second. One tiny little thing happens and you too are in that same position. I think we so much realize that right now with what we're in. More people realize it now. So that song, which is really a funny soft shoe kind of comedy song, which everybody thought was hilarious, but mostly the disabled people in the audience thought it was the funniest. They were howling with laughter because it really followed their life through the streets of New York. Because I talk about many different examples of spectacular falls, but I bring it back to the fact that it could happen to anybody, and the audience feels that, and they get that. Nobody There's that banana peel out there ready to trip any of yes. us up. and you don't know. You don't know. And you could be, be so careful, and it's it's going to get you if it's there. I, I want to uh, talk about your advocacy for disabled actors. You are presently the National Chair of SAG-AFTRA Performers with Disabilities Committee, right? Perfect. You said it perfectly, yes. And on the board of the union... Yes. Many years on the SAG after union, founding member of Inclusion in the Arts Project Deal, which is Disability in Entertainment and Arts Link. I've been in initiatives with the Broadway League and the Writers Guild, the Directors Guild, the Producers Guild. I've I've been in all of those rooms and this has been going on for decades. I think I started as an advocate for people people with disabilities right after my first operation and um just by getting up on stage with a brace on, I became a representative of performers with disabilities just without trying to. It just was, oh, you actually have a disability. I was playing Laura in Glass Menagerie, and the director had cast me not knowing how to brace on my leg. And we went, we started rehearsing. He goes, you know, we didn't know you had a brace on your leg. We just thought you were doing that particular kind of walk to be Laura. <laughs> I was like, no. And Laura says in Glass Menagerie, I had that brace on my leg. But um, but they didn't know, and but there's not so there's, there. I was suddenly an advocate for performers with disabilities because I got the role because I was, ta- I had the abilities and skills to play the role. I got cast, and then they learned that an actor with a disability could be an asset on many levels. Eighty three was when I started um, being an, more active with the unions and uh, for inclusion and diversity and stuff. And back then, they were just starting up performers with disabilities uh, committees on the West Coast and the East Coast. Mm -hmm. And there were three unions, Equity, SAG, and AFTRA. Now SAG-AFTRA is together. But at that point, there were three unions. And because nobody was getting work, or maybe one or two on a wild, it just like happened that somebody, like Jerry Jewell was like one example of somebody who got work because she was so funny. And so we were, we started really fighting for more inclusion, but it didn't, it really didn't happen at all. And so the decades went by and I, I had risen up to being the national chair. At one point I was chair of all the 
the actors unions for performers with disabilities and I was organizing everybody and in 2009 this is this is 1980 2009 we did a few things we started a campaign called I am PWD I A M P W D inclusion in the arts and media of people with disabilities and it was a three-year campaign where we went out and we that's when we started like confronting the AMPTP, the producers in Hollywood, the producers on Broadway, the producers of theaters throughout the country. This was when we really got busy and active and we had groups of, you know, action groups. My, my action group was the watchdog where we took data. We started keeping track. If, a, if there was a role with a disability that wasn't played by a disabled actor, we kept track of that. If a disabled actor got a job, there was like a percentage of a percentage, we would write that down. So we kept, we started keeping statistics, we started making statistics and data. And in 2010, the, the media started looking at that Hollywood Reporter and, well, mostly Hollywood Reporter was like going, oh, and Variety and stuff like that. And they were listening to us at this point. And in 2010, we nego I was on a negotiating committee for, I was on the negotiating team for a contract, one of our TV theatrical contracts, which for the union and I worked thank God for some of the staff people who helped to push me I convinced the AMPTP that we needed it in our contract that you have to include you have to look at performers with disabilities you can't discriminate against them and you have to at least audition them enforcement was a problem people said I you can't tell me who to cast and we're, we're not telling you who to cast but you need to look at take a look and then we started like gathering people like when chill mitchell black actor who was in um galaxy quest really funny guy lost hit uh was in an accident and ended up in a wheelchair he did the show ed and that was a really good thing but he's his, he's on that committee and he jokingly says yeah first i'm a black actor who can't get work now i'm a black and disabled actor i'm never gonna get work but now you see him on ncis um new orleans he's got a regular he's a series regular and we became friends years ago at a diversity event of like pushing this idea of disability being actually an advantage to hire. So between 2009 and 2012, we started the wheels turning and the, and then it started getting more. My watchdog list was going from all these actors playing disabilities and getting Oscars and all that stuff who had no disabilities and this many actors actually getting a job. Now, in the last three years, 2017 to now, the watchdog list changed. Now it's like all these actors with disabilities, performers with disabilities, and in the and these in all kinds of roles, but in the roles with disabilities, it's gone from this many people who don't have a disability playing that role. We reversed, and now we've got all these disabled actors working, and two or three that we we actually when when we see it, we go, uh, excuse me, <laughs> this is 2020. You, why are you doing this now? Because we keep the track and we keep the data. Uh, we really have changed, and the Casting Society of America, bless them, about a year ago, maybe two years ago now, said, you know what, let's get on board here. Let's do an open call all over the country and put all these people on tape, put PWDs on tape. And they did. And and then they, the CSA, the, it's like SAG-AFTRA, but it was for casting, the Casting Society of America, the head, Russell Boast, said, 
we're not gonna we're not gonna say anymore that there isn't a, a, a talent pool because now we know there is there's 900 actors with who are performers and disabilities and we have them all on tape so if you ever need to find someone we have it right at the Casting Society of America right. and if that hadn't happened I don't think we would have had this incredible bump in the past we've I mean the Dan, Daniel Day Lewis my left foot kind of an That's actor one and of the, the, biggest the Dustin Hoffman in, in Rain Man you could um, go on and on. The list is incredible. Right. Of, oh, I'll play a gimp and I'll get an Oscar. That's what exactly. I'll do. Exactly. I'm gonna, I'll 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 get some kind of disease and I'll get an Oscar. Or I'll I'll be a straight person and I'll play a gay person and I'll get an Oscar. I mean, it's it's that kind of thing, but it's so unfair. Right. And recently, exactly. Brian Cranston. Oh, I knew you were gonna because that's the, the most. That's yeah. one of the more recent ones, and I was so disappointed because I admire and respect him very much, and I was like. Really? You did Breaking Bad with R.J. Mitty, also on our committee. R.J. Mitty has real CP. He played your son. It didn't, it didn't somehow translate to you as maybe you should not play a character in a wheelchair. And what was great about Brian Cranston is that my vice chair, Danny Woodburn, comedian, actor, little person who uh, was famous for doing Seinfeld, He's a friend of Brian Cranston because they did a movie together with Robin Williams. So Danny, as my vice chair, he says, uh, don't say anything about it yet. I got to go talk to Brian. And he talks to him and he says, okay, you can't do this. As a friend I'm, and, and as a colleague, I'm telling you, you can't do this. And it was done. It was already done and it was in the can and it happened. But, but Brian Cranston said, okay, I get it. I'm sorry. I, I get it now. I had no idea because getting that message out to everyone seems to be really difficult. <laughs> Things take time. It, it does. Those and we ideas. know it because we've been, Danny and I have been at this since the early 80s. I know he was part of the original LA PWD committee in 1980 with uh, Robert David Hall from CSI. He's a double amputee. He was the coroner on CSI. So we're seeing more and more um, of disabled characters in film and theater i mean yeah. the percentage of disabled people in the world is not necessarily re represented in the number of characters we've been saying it's 20 at least 20 percent of the population self-identifies as having a real disability so to represent them i mean interestingly enough you're seeing more people uh performers with disabilities in commercials because that's a buying that's buying power your toyota commercials should probably include them and they did and we got that message going and now it you can see a lot more uh during the paralympics of course it's all commercials about athletes with disabilities are in those commercials every product now is looking it over and it, and you know in the early 90s uh, i think kmart was looking to do that now with my agents, we, we always try to ask all the questions. Do you, would you like to see her on one leg? Would you like to see her on two legs? This is just, we just need to know it can be either way. And that could not have been asked in the days when uh, Robert David Hall was auditioning. He, he went in for CSI with two legs and everything, and they only later realized, oh my gosh, he's a double amputee. And then 10 years into the series, they did a, an episode that featured his disability because they never had done it. I just did FBI Most Wanted. I went to the audition going, sometimes I get fatalistic. I'm like, who the fuck cares? I'm not going to get this anyways. I've auditioned for Law & Order so many times. I was on one Law & Order and one SVU. But 
both times I got those jobs when I went in without my legs. So I went, I'm going to go. Same, it's Dick Wolf, same producer. So I go to the FBI Most Wanted on one leg. I don't care. And then the director's like, oh, this is so cool. Um, I said, uh, do you want me to? I didn't know if you wanted me to wear one leg or two. Well, I get the gig. And then I still ask my agent to ask them, do they want me to be on two legs? I play in a land landlady. There's nothing about disability in the script. So what do they want? And uh, the director said, no, I want her to be on one leg. She's a one-legged landlady. And this is what we've been fighting for for 30 years. For almost you know, like 30 years we've been fighting for them to go, no, she's a secretary who happens to have a disability. No, it's a judge. She's, the judge sits up there. Who knows what she's got? You know, The fact that FBI Most Wanted said they were we preferred this woman to have one leg was just a marvelous thing and we're all discovering that as directors start to wake up to these ideas they don't think of it as like this like they used to they think more like well that's unique that's different people it'll get people's attention it's interesting that it's taken so long because i mean back the film is still way behind i mean harold russell you know the harold russell yes thing. yes i mean this was back in the 50s in the uh, best year of our lives. Yeah, it was way back. I right. have the date even in my watch It might have been the late like 40s. Harold Russell, and then there's like the 40 years. This guy with two, hand, two hands missing. Um, and and he got two Academy Awards, a veteran from World War II. And you yeah. would have thought that like, this is a brilliant performance. And it the fact that he was disabled added to the quality of yeah. the film. Yeah, and Marley Matlin was like I said, you go like forty there you years, go. Later, yeah. and then Marley Matlin gets a Children of Lesser God. Now you would think that would also be like, wow, but no, it was as if it never happened because they're going. Uh, we're looking for actors who can sound like they're deaf, who can speak but sound like they're deaf, and it's such offensive to the deaf community. It's like, excuse me. We, Deaf actors are some of the best actors around. I don't know if you've seen Russell Harvard in To Kill a Mockingbird or on when he was in King Lear or the play he did at Playwrights. Um, he's brilliant. Well, and I mean, he's deaf. There's, there's a question of who, who better knows about how to play a disability than someone who's experienced it. I mean, right? And that's the point right there. All right. That is, and then you know what the answer we get to that is? Well, I'm not a murderer, but I can play a murderer. Mm -hmm. I'm like, how do we even answer back from that? Yeah, we were getting that a lot. Well, you know, I'm not a psychopath, but I play one on TV. Are you comparing being a psychopath literally to having one leg? Because honestly, you, yeah. no, it's yeah. not going to work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and really, it comes down to what is the role like. There's also the question, I'm, I'm turning to, um, you may know him, Nick Lenahan, Identity Theater. I do know Nick. Right. I, mean, I know who he is. Yeah. He said, I'm quoting him, just because a character is not specifically written for a disabled person does not mean that a disabled person cannot play that character effectively. And you've kind of referred to that. If yes. acting is rooted in pretend, then why can't we open our eyes and hearts to the abilities that are out there and that are going unheard? Do we ever get to a point where whether you're black or you're white or you're blind or you're seeing or you're one-legged or two-legged, that you can play any role um, and, that, and that the audience won't see you as one-legged but see you as an actor. And the one-leggedness becomes irrelevant. 
Well, if you look at all of the things on my resume, the majority of roles I've played have no disability. They're not written that way. Brighton Beach Memoirs, Golden Fiddler on the Roof. Surprisingly, when I did Ragtime, Emma, Emma Goldman, and after a show, someone came over, came up to me and said, how did you get Emma Goldman's walk down? I was like, what? Said, yeah, Emma Goldman had a problem with her hip. She, she had a painful hip. I didn't know this. And she said, she walked exactly like you walk. Mm. But that was not, that was not in the script. It didn't say Emma Goldman, character with disability, because nobody knew that. Yeah. So sometimes it's a surprise. When I did Cats, I did Grizabella twice. I asked them if I could do it on one leg. Because normally you see this decrepit, at, walks, limps on stage, all like pathetic. And I said, why don't we do it as a three-legged cat? Because she, something did happen to her. So I did. For two runs of Cats, I, I played Grizabella on one leg. And at one point, I, stood, I sang Memory standing on one leg and doing the dance thing on one leg. And then sometimes I was down on the floor and sometimes I was crawling up the scenery and because it was so easy on one leg to do that. I like, climbed on the top of the radio and, and peeked through all the different, it was like a jungle gym for me, which was great. But one of the directors was all for it. One of the directors was, she didn't really like the idea. In the end, the audience members came up. There was an audience member who came to her and said, where did you get that brilliant idea to hire a one-legged actress to play a three-legged cat? And so she came to me and she went, okay, I probably shouldn't tell you this, but people really like the idea. <laughs> they think that it's, they're giving me all the credit for like doing that. And she was the one who had actually said, couldn't you just try it on two legs? Cause that's not really, cause she had done it on, you know, she had done it on Broadway and she'd done it. And it was like, just not right. Just not right. But in fact, the audience got a, a much different experience than they normally get watching the show. But again, it wasn't a character written to be like that. She was written to have been through something. She was old and tired, but it was different when you play it on my leg. And I played it as someone who was fine with herself, but didn't understand why nobody liked her. Wait, you guys, you're all my family. Why are you treating me like this? Yeah. And that's why the song Memory changed ultimately to something about you know, she's been rejected by society. And we had a discussion, the cast had a conversation about this. I said, you guys are the society that reject, are playing the society that rejects the scary disabled person, even though you knew this person before they became disabled. She, she was part of your pack, but now it's like, scary, ah, uh, because hmm. it might happen to me. Oh, no, yeah. And grossed out. And they took that and ran with it. So all the acting in that production was, they had that thing of, and it was real. And the audi it resonated with the audience. And the idea of loss resonated with the audience. It's the point you made. And it's the point we've all been trying to make. My resume makes that point, but it doesn't help everybody. It hasn't helped necessarily. I mean, my advocacy, I think, has helped. Mm -hmm. um, but that's what we're looking for, is to get have an audition for a part that has nothing to do with that. And the FBI Most Wanted, I was thrilled with that director. Yeah. Yeah. And it just becomes part of your actor thing that you pull from yourself. It's about the personality of the who is this person? How does she speak? How does she react right. to things? It's, it has nothing to do with yeah. other and, stuff. And we're all we're all different. We're all and, different, and we have to embrace yeah, that it's difference. True. Yeah. And Russell Howard is playing the characters, but not the disability. And this is the other thing of people playing 
people who don't have disabilities playing disabled roles, they tend to play the disability. They're working really hard, like Elephant Man. Oh, gosh, yeah. you know, Bradley Cooper has to go to a therapist every day because he gets so sore. You know what? Fuck that. Yeah. <laughs> because you know what? It's not about playing the disability. It's about playing who this person is. It really is. And if you have someone who actually, and I've, I've done a reading of Elephant Man with an actor who has a similar situation, uh, and he was brilliant he's a brilliant actor who can't get work but when he did that role everyone was like that is the role that is the role yeah. because he wasn't playing his disability he was playing the character can we get to that day when he could play well, we we're much closer than we ever were okay so maybe Good. i mean there are days when i go we'll never get there but we're much my statistics show we are much closer to that you were going to share with us a new song that you wrote for and with your 94-year-old aunt. Yeah. Can you do that? She's, my 94-year-old aunt is isolated in, a, in a, an assisted living facility in Ohio. Ooh. Ooh. She's, a, she's been a singer all her life. She's been a choral director and arranger, musical arranger. She's brilliant. But, but her thing is about being around people. And she's been isolated all this time since March. So on Sundays, I call her and we sing together. And she, tell, she was telling me about what it's like to be in isolation like that when she's so not that kind of person. And I took the words. And at one point, she said something about her, the view out her window is empty parking lots. And then she said, wait, maybe that's a song. I'm going, I think you're right. So I took all the things she told me and based it on those empty parking lots. And that's, that's the song. Can you do, do it? it? Oh, absolutely. Silence surrounds me as I walk the floor. Meals are delivered. I could buy them too. And 
Fantastic. You got me here a little weepy. <laughs> it gets to me too, because it really is her. <laughs> really is her. It's her, but it's a lot of people. Yeah. This is not just your aunt. This is a lot of people who are sitting there in those yeah. nursing homes and assisted living places and so gosh darn isolated. My my mom left us several years ago, and I'm sort of glad she didn't have to face this. Exactly. I hope we learn from this, and um, that uh, you'll be on your stage, various stages, as soon as possible. Th thank you very much, Anita Hollander, for uh, joining us here on Hunker Down. It was a pleasure, and again, I, I thank Joel uh, Bernstein for getting us together. Stay safe, so stay glad. healthy. Thank you. And You've been listening to the Hunker Down Podcast, conversations with actors and musicians about their lives on stage during a pandemic. If you have any questions or suggestions, please contact us at UpperWestSideRadio at gmail.com. That's one word, UpperWestSideRadio at gmail.com. <laughs>